Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Lainey here. And as you know, I am out on my maternity leave, taking care of my little girl, Tilden. And while I miss you, I am definitely enjoying the time off to bond with her and to start our little family together. But one of my friends who has an amazing podcast, his name is Eric Carter Landon. He hosts the True Consequences podcast, and he's agreed to do this episode for me, and I'm really, really appreciative. Eric's going to tell us about where we can find him and how you can hear his story, because his story about his little brother is insanely tragic and incredible all at the same time, but there's still so much to be done. And thankfully, Jacob, his little brother, has an incredible advocate in Eric. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, it's Eric Carter-Landine, the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you can find your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to the TCFC Podcast. I'm Eric from the podcast True Consequences, and I'm filling in for Lainey who is on maternity leave. Research shows that children who are severely abused as children are three times more likely to develop schizophrenia as an adult. In addition, neglect and abuse in childhood have been shown to contribute to an increased risk of future violence. Although this isn't a reason to excuse behavior, it does explain why some men and women grow up to be violent. Okay, on to the show. Adam Irving Clark was born on July 31, 1952, in Troy, New York. Haddon's delivery was assisted with the use of forceps, which produced a head injury on the newborn infant. Haddon had difficulty walking and fell often, striking his head. At the age of four, Haddon was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. He was given therapy, but he still fell so much that his mother, Flavia Clark, taped his head to try to prevent additional head trauma. Haddon's parents were Haddon Clark Sr. and Flavia Clark. Haddon Sr. was a Korean War veteran who obtained a doctoral degree and worked as an engineer for a gasoline company. Flavia was a stay-at-home mom who was often the target of Sr.'s rage, as Sr. was bipolar. Flavia was hyperactive and, quote, often drank heavily in order to sleep, end quote. Haddon's brother Jeffrey said their parents were functioning alcoholics. Despite their substance abuse issues and their apparent mental disorders, Senior and Flavia were active in the parent-teacher association, Boy Scouts, church, and civic organizations. 
Haddon was one of four siblings and the youngest of three boys. They grew up in the affluent community of Warren, New Jersey, in a large, two-story colonial house surrounded by several acres of woods. Tony, one of Haddon's childhood friends, said yelling was always heard from the Clark household. Tony also said that the family was kind of strange. The Clark family later moved to Rhode Island, although some sources say the family moved to Connecticut or Pennsylvania. The family home in Rhode Island was in an upscale tourist community named Block Island. As a child, Haddon was known by his neighbors as meek and, quote, quite quiet, end quote, and often mischievous, but not a problem child. Haddon did have learning difficulties, so he started kindergarten at a public school a few years late. Sadly, he was teased and tormented by his classmates, and so was sent to a public school for children with learning disabilities. His friend, Chris, said Haddon was, quote, a little slow in school, end quote. When he turned 14, he began attending a private school. However, although he had made progress in his special needs school, his progress stopped when he changed schools. In addition to his learning difficulties, Haddon had a speech impediment and a quick temper. His friend Tony said when Haddon became angry, he had no control. If things didn't work out the way he thought, he would explode and all the kids would walk away waiting for him to calm down. He was also reported to be a sullen loner who couldn't relate to other kids. Haddon was able to relax during summer vacation, typically spent in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, at their grandparents' Cape Cod home. Their grandfather, Silas Clark, had been a prominent attorney and politician before retirement. Haddon did like the outdoors and physical activities, and his brother Jeff said Haddon was a highly skilled chess player. However, Haddon liked to dress in girls' and women's clothes. According to his mother, her and her daughter's undergarments went missing, and she caught Haddon wearing them more than once. A neighbor of theirs had hired Haddon to do some yard work and found Haddon in her bedroom, wearing one of her nightgowns. Haddon graduated from high school one month before his 20th birthday. After high school, Haddon attended the Culinary Institute of America in New York and graduated in two years. As an adult, Haddon was known to be standoffish, but had a, quote, compulsive desire to be accepted socially, end quote. However, he did not have social skills, and he knew it. Haddon attended church, where he was known to be a little loud sometimes, and would often make immature comments, according to the reverend. Haddon was also described as an eccentric and generous man with periods of depression. His brother, Jeff, said Haddon was very sensitive to criticism and was very quick to overreact. He would often take minor corrections or suggestions as personal affronts. Haddon was paranoid and believed that people were out to get him and he would react in self-destructive ways. After he graduated from the Culinary Institute in 1974, for the next eight years, Haddon quit, or was fired, from more than 12 kitchen jobs. When Haddon was 30 years old, he enlisted in the United States Navy, and he was a cook on the USS Iwo Jima. In 1985, the ship was docked in Portsmouth, Virginia, where he, quote, exhibited bizarre activity, end quote and was detained at the airport. After he was arrested for destruction of property and acting bizarre at a local store, he was sent to see a naval psychiatrist. The psychiatrist asked him about his behavior at the store and Haddon said he couldn't remember what happened in the store because he had, quote, blacked out. He said his mental issues had recently started after several of his shipmates had attacked him and beaten him unconscious. He stated his shipmates were jealous of him because he had a superior ability at cooking 
the psychiatrist diagnosed Haddon with paranoid schizophrenia manifested by persecutory and grandiose delusions. On June 22, 1985, Haddon was discharged from the U.S. Navy and sent to a Veterans Administration hospital for counseling. He only lasted there a few days before he headed to Silver Spring, Maryland, to his brother Jeff's house. Jeff was divorced and lived alone, with the exception of weekends when his kids would visit. He allowed Haddon to move into the basement. He later said, quote, As bad as he was before the Navy, he was a lot worse when he got out. End quote. In September 1985, Haddon was arrested for shoplifting women's undergarments. Jeff paid his bail, and the charge was eventually dropped. Haddon began his pattern of job hopping and would carry on angry, rambling conversations with himself. This disturbed Jeff and scared his fiancée Stephanie. So in May 1986, Jeff asked Haddon to move out. Haddon was angry, but Jeff gave him a deadline of May 31st. Haddon, who was working as a chef at the Chevy Chase Country Club, moved into a rented room in Wheaton in mid-May with only some of his belongings. He told his brother he'd come back on the 31st to get the rest. Jeff had his kids that weekend, so he and Stephanie took the kids to the park before Haddon showed up that morning. Jeff and his family returned home early that afternoon as Haddon was loading the last of his belongings into his truck. When he finished, he didn't say much and left. Later that afternoon, Jeff and Stephanie were cooking out when Carl Dorr, one of their neighbors, came over and asked about his daughter Michelle. Carl lived two doors away from Jeff, and Michelle and Jeff's daughter Elizabeth often played together. Michelle, six years old, was the daughter of Carl and Dorothy Dorr, who divorced in 1985. Carl had visitation of Michelle every other weekend. His ex-wife had accused Carl of physical and mental abuse. This abuse had occurred in front of their daughter at times. One time, Carl had pushed Dorothy onto the icy ground. And Michelle started crying, Mommy, and ran over to her. At other times, the police were called because Carl was hitting Dorothy. Her parents' divorce affected Michelle very badly. She started stuttering and missed four months of school. She also began grinding her teeth in her sleep and was eventually diagnosed with stress. She had to repeat kindergarten. Her mother said Michelle didn't smile as much as other kids because Michelle had, quote, seen too much for a six-year-old, end quote. Dorothy filed a restraining order against Carl for herself and Michelle in February 1986. She alleged Carl had come to her house and threatened to kidnap Michelle from the bus stop. She reported Carl said he could, quote, end all of this by making a phone call that would end my life, end quote. In May 1986, Carl was ordered to pay an increased amount of child support. $400 rather than $250. Dorothy had previously tried to get an increase, but said Carl was purposely getting fired from his jobs so he would not have to pay as much. He denied this much later and said it was not about the money and he loved his daughter. On May 31, 1986, Michelle and Carl were planning on going swimming in the afternoon. Michelle had on a new bathing suit that she and Dorothy had recently purchased from Oshkosh Bagosh. The bathing suit was hot pink had a ruffle around the waist and polka dots on it. Carl had purchased a green wading pool and put it in the backyard for Michelle to play in until they went to the big pool. Michelle went outside with a towel, eager to play in the pool. Carl paid bills, straightened the house, and watched the rescheduled Indy 500. He could hear kids playing in the yard since he had the windows up and thought he was hearing his daughter and some of the neighbor's kids. However, when he looked outside, he didn't see Michelle. 
He did see Jeff, Clark's son, outside, so Carl assumed Michelle was with Jeff's daughter, Elizabeth. Around 4 o'clock, he looked again, but still didn't see Michelle, but still believed that she was with Elizabeth. When he went to Jeff's house, Jeff explained that they had arrived home at 3 o'clock and hadn't seen Michelle. Carl began to freak out and started driving around the neighborhood, frantically searching for his daughter. He couldn't find her. So at 6.30 p.m., he went to the police station to report her missing. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters, grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When police cars began scouring the neighborhood for any trace of Michelle, Jeff told police they should look at his brother, Haddon. Investigators spoke to the neighbors between Carl and Jeff's houses, who said they had left their home between 11.30 and 12.20 on May 31st. Before they left, they witnessed Haddon putting a duffel bag in the back of his truck. Police and volunteers searched the neighborhood and surrounding areas, in the hope that they would find Michelle. Investigators began to look at Michelle's family as possible suspects, quickly honing in on Carl. On Sunday, he agreed to take a polygraph, but the only person available to give one was the fire marshal. The fire marshal reported Carl knew more than he was admitting. However, police searched his home with his consent and found nothing to indicate that he'd been involved in the disappearance of his daughter. Sunday evening, investigators reached Dorothy in Southern Virginia, where she and her older daughter from another marriage were visiting relatives. As Detective Wayne Farrell told Dorothy her daughter was missing, she blurted out, quote, Carl did it, end quote. 
then went into detail about their failed marriage and abuse, as well as the somewhat incriminating statements she said that he'd made. However, in the investigators' minds, Carl had motive to murder his daughter. Without a daughter, he would not have to pay child support. That same night, detectives interrogated Carl in an interview room. Detective Farrell was in Carl's face saying he failed the polygraph, and they knew he'd done something with his daughter. Carl denied the allegations his ex-wife had made and said that he'd never made threats towards his daughter. Detectives finished questioning him at 11.30 p.m. and drove him home. Carl had been up for 36 hours at this point. The next morning, Carl was supposed to undergo another polygraph exam, but his divorce attorney advised against it and told Carl to invoke the Fifth Amendment. Carl did refuse the polygraph that morning, and it launched a full-scale investigation into his life. A grand jury was convened and Carl and his brother had to testify, but nothing was gleaned from the grand jury. Carl invoked the fifth as advised, which annoyed the investigators. Meanwhile, police were using search dogs and cadaver dogs to try to find Michelle. They also used ground-penetrating radar and searched more than 12 large areas from Bethesda to Cape Cod, all to no avail. Police installed a device on Carl's phone line which would record all outgoing phone numbers. This device would stay on his line for 49 days and would yield nothing useful. On June 7, 1986, Carl underwent another polygraph exam, which indicated he was telling the truth and knew nothing about Michelle's disappearance. Police didn't believe it, however. Also on June 7, Carl began having hallucinations. He had not eaten or slept since Michelle's disappearance, and it began having serious mental repercussions. As he was watching television that night, he started thinking that the people on the TV were talking about him, and that the police had wired his television set. The next day, he drove to his father's grave in Prince George's County. He started talking to the headstone, and the headstone responded. Carl began believing he was Jesus, and because of this, if he had found Michelle, he could bring her back to life. He drove to his ex-wife's home to tell her this, and found a non-profit missing child investigator who had somehow inserted himself into the case. After Carl told Dorothy he was Jesus and could resurrect Michelle, the investigator threw him out. This made Carl think the investigator was Satan and he had killed Michelle, then hidden her body in the crawl space under Carl's bedroom. The next morning, Carl tried again. Returning to Dorothy's home, he told her the investigator was Satan and he was the one responsible for their daughter's disappearance. The police were called and a search warrant was obtained for Carl's home. Somehow, however, the message relayed to the investigators was misunderstood or miscommunicated, and the report was written that Carl had admitted to killing Michelle. The search under the home revealed nothing. Carl was admitted to a psychiatric ward for 72 hours of observation. A psychiatrist told investigators that Carl had suffered an acute psychotic episode caused by stress, exhaustion, and his guilt over not checking on Michelle sooner. On June 13th, Carl was interviewed again, trying to pinpoint the last time he had seen Michelle. The official report says 2.10 p.m., but Carl said it could have been between 12.15 and 2.10. He just wasn't sure. It had been two weeks since she had been missing, and in that time, he had suffered a serious mental breakdown. Police continued to investigate Carl, interviewing his family, friends, and co-workers. In August, Carl underwent hypnosis. In October, he was injected with, quote, truth serum, end quote, or amidal sodium. While under the effects of the truth serum, Carl reiterated his original version of Michelle's disappearance. 
In the fall of 1987, with no news about his daughter, Carl again became convinced he could resurrect Michelle if he could find her. He went to the Silver Spring Police Department and announced this power to them, which led investigators to start interrogating him again. Detective Michael Garvey, who had received the initial report about Michelle, started working on Carl, trying to get him to admit to the crime. Detective Garvey told Carl that they had the towel that Michelle was carrying, and they knew he'd done it. Carl was confused, and the detective said, quote, The towel you left behind when you killed her. End quote. Carl said he didn't kill her, and the detective said that they knew Michelle had drowned accidentally in the pool, and that he did something with the body. Carl became more and more confused, until by the end of the questioning, he believed he had killed Michelle. They called Dorothy, and she argued that she knew Carl had not done it. After that, Carl spent 10 more days in a psychiatric facility. Despite Dorothy's protest that Carl didn't do it when he was delusional, she went on America's Most Wanted in May 1988 and said Carl did it. Carl watched the episode, went to her house, and demanded to be let in. Carl told her he knew where Michelle was, and the truth would, quote, burn a hole in your soul, end quote. Carl was not charged, and the case went cold. In the meantime, at the beginning of the investigation, police did question Haddon Clark twice. The first interview with him was on June 5, 1986, when Detective Wayne Farrell saw Haddon loading his truck in Jeff's driveway. The detective stopped and asked Haddon some questions. Haddon said he had not seen Michelle on May 31st. Detective Farrell asked him where he had been on May 31st, and Haddon said he'd only been at Jeff's for about two minutes so he could feed his rabbits. After that, Haddon said he rode his bike to work. Police checked his time card, and Haddon had clocked in at 2.46 p.m. on May 31st. They also discovered he had arrived to work with a bandage on his hand. Haddon explained it as an injury caused when he collided with a tree on his way to work. Haddon was interviewed again on June 8th. He told Detective Farrell he had been at Jeff's house between 1.30 p.m. and 1.45 p.m. and had let someone in to use the phone. This man reported to police that there was a, quote, small, white female, end quote, with Haddon when he went inside to use Jeff's phone. During the second interview, when asked about Michelle's appearance, Haddon's entire demeanor changed. He went to the bathroom and started vomiting and crying. When he asked what he did to Michelle, he held his head and started rocking back and forth. He said he may have blacked out and asked for a psychiatrist. He talked to his doctor and then asked to leave. His request was granted. In 1988, Haddon was arrested for assaulting his mother. She and her daughter Allison were living in Rhode Island after Haddon Sr. had committed suicide in 1986. Sr. committed suicide following a horrific crime committed by Haddon's brother, Bradfield. On July 23, 1984, Bradfield had invited one of his co-workers, Patricia Mack, to his apartment in Los Gatos, California for dinner. He apparently made a rude comment and she slapped him. This enraged him, and they began to struggle. He strangled her, then dismembered her body in his bathtub, chopping her into small parts. He put her remains in trash bags, then put these bags in an ice chest in the trunk of his car. Two days later, he tried to commit suicide. When police responded, they asked about Patricia, and he told them she was in his trunk. In June 1985, Bradfield pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and mutilation of a corpse. He was sentenced to 18 years to life in prison. 
He became eligible for parole in 1994, but was denied parole from 1994 to 2002. Between 2002 and 2009, he stipulated to unsuitability. In 2016 and 2021, he waived the right to a hearing for five years. He will be eligible for a hearing again in 2026 when he is 76 years old. After the assault charge, Haddon pleaded no contest and received one year of probation and had to receive counseling. In June 1988, Haddon had moved out of a rented room in Bethesda. He left fish heads in the piano, chimney, and stove and rigged a booby trap over the door. The booby trap sprayed black dye all over the carpet. The landlady filed malicious destruction of property charges against Haddon and told reporters, quote, his lifestyle is getting even, end quote. He was given a year of probation and had to continue counseling. In February 1989, Haddon was stopped by police who found nine purses that had been stolen from a church choir. Police also found a woman's wig in the car. They asked about the wig and purses. Haddon told them, quote, I'm a woman, end quote. His probation officer asked the court to arrest Haddon and have him institutionalized. The probation officer said that Haddon was, quote, mentally unstable and a threat to the community, end quote. However, he was merely given three years of probation. In 1992, Haddon was homeless and, quote, a familiar face in the homeless community around Bethesda, end quote. He was living out of his Datsun truck at an improvised campsite in the woods. When he could not find a steady job, he worked as a handyman or gardener. In October 1992, Haddon was working for Hotelings as a handyman and gardener for approximately two years. Frederick and Penelope Hotelling had a daughter, Laura, who was born in 1969. Frederick had passed away in 1986. Laura was living with her mother in 1992 after she graduated from Harvard. During the weekend of October 17, 1992, Penelope was out of town, leaving 23-year-old Laura at home. Penelope said Haddon was aware she was going to be out of town. When Laura did not show up for work on October 19th, she was reported missing. She had been last seen in her bedroom. A woman was seen leaving the home around 8.45 p.m. Police confirmed this, but they believe it was Haddon, dressed as a woman. It couldn't have been Laura, because it was hours after she would have had to leave for work. Laura's brothers and friends started looking for Laura, and while they were looking, they saw Haddon driving by, and they waved him down to ask if he had seen Laura. When her brother got to the passenger side door, Haddon gunned the vehicle and left. Bethesda police contacted investigators working on Michelle's case to let them know Haddon's name had surfaced in another disappearance. When police questioned Haddon about Laura, he gave them an alibi, just as he had with Michelle's disappearance. When investigators searched the home, there was no blood visible to the naked eye in Laura's room. But when they used luminol and special lights, they found traces of blood on Laura's mattress. The room had been cleaned thoroughly. On October 23, 1992, bloody bedding was found in the woods near Laura's house. A pillowcase had a bloody fingerprint on it, which turned out to be Haddon's. On October 24, 1992, Haddon was asked about Laura and Michelle. Haddon reacted as viscerally as he had when being questioned about Michelle. He got on his knees, began crying, and said, quote, Oh God, I just want to die. End quote. He also said he might have blacked out and done something terrible. 
which is what he said when he was questioned about Michelle in 1986. Investigators believed he had killed Michelle based on the similarities in both cases, such as cleaning the scene and hiding the body. This revived Michelle's cold case, and he became the primary suspect. On October 31st, Haddon traveled to the Clark family burial plot in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. On November 6th, 1992, Haddon was arrested and interrogated. Investigators believed they had enough to convict him of murdering Laura, but there was a slim chance she was still alive and being held somewhere, so they decided to hold an illegal interrogation of Haddon. On the evening they arrested him, they transformed an interview room into a cozy space, hoping to get Haddon to relax. They told him nothing he said could be used against him in a court of law, and at 10.45 p.m., they started interrogating him. They began by sending in two female detectives, knowing that Haddon had an issue dealing with women. These women got nowhere. They sent in an older female detective to play the nurturing, mothering part, but she got nowhere. The first set of detectives went in, and then finally around 3 in the morning, they sent in Mike Garvey from the Michelle Dorr case. Haddon asked for an attorney more than 100 times and talked in three different voices. He was mostly incoherent and provided only one potentially useful bit of information. He said he had, quote, buried them, end quote, in New Jersey. According to an appeal document, Haddon was physically assaulted during this interrogation. The prosecutor admitted at trial that the interrogation was, quote, improper. The judge at the trial said the interrogation was the worst I have ever seen. Police searched New Jersey in the area where Haddon had lived as a child but did not find anything. While searching Haddon's truck, investigators found a map of the Wellfleet Cemetery and an eyeglass case full of graveyard dirt. They believed Haddon had buried Laura or Michelle in the cemetery, then went back on October 31st to move the body or bodies. When investigators visited the cemetery, the topsoil in the Clark family plot had been disturbed, and cadaver dogs hit on the area. However, no remains were found. When police asked Haddon why he went to the cemetery on October 31st, he said the investigation was making him uncomfortable. He said the family plot had been disturbed because, quote, something got dug up. Maybe some dog was looking for some bones, end quote. Haddon was charged with Laura's murder. In January 1993, police again searched for Laura and Michelle's remains in Wellfleet, this time at a property once owned by his grandfather. Once again, nothing was turned up. In June 1993, Haddon pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in Laura's case and was sentenced to 30 years. He said he had smothered her while she was in bed, then buried her. Haddon's attorney said Haddon had viewed Penelope, Laura's mother, as his mother figure, and saw Laura as a threat to that relationship, so he killed her. As has happened in other similar cases, the plea bargain did not stipulate that Haddon had to reveal where he had buried Laura. The family really didn't want to know. However, he led police to Laura's remains anyway. She was buried not far from her home in Haddon's makeshift camp, in a lot off Interstate 270 and Old Georgetown Road. Police announced publicly that Haddon was the primary suspect in Michelle Dorr's disappearance. Prosecutors asked Carl what he thought about a plea bargain where Haddon served time for Michelle's murder, while also serving time for Laura's. 
If that meant Carl would find out where Michelle's remains were, Carl said, I'd trade a guilty verdict on a capital murder charge any day of the week for continuing to not know how he got rid of Michelle. Once again, investigators met with Carl to see if he could remember when he had last seen her. He finally admitted it was earlier than 2.10 p.m. when he last saw her. He had been embarrassed to admit he left his young daughter unattended for so long before he realized that she was missing. Police knew then that Haddon had time to take Michelle. While in prison, Haddon spoke to five different inmates about Michelle. Two of these spoke with him in August 1994, telling him they wanted to write his life story. They were actually hoping to convert information about Michelle into a reduction in their sentences. They asked if he had murdered Michelle, and he replied, quote, Yeah. He went on to say he had killed her at his brother's home. He was downstairs when he heard a noise upstairs and went to his truck to get his knives. He came back inside with a 12-inch butcher knife, walked up the stairs, and found Michelle playing in his niece's room. He slashed her throat with enough force that he nearly decapitated her. He put her body in a trash bag, then put the trash bag into a duffel bag he had been seen loading into the back of the truck. He cleaned his niece's room, throwing away anything that had blood on it, and then he left for work, but only drove part of the way there. He parked his truck about halfway and then rode his bike the rest of the way to work. Between September 1996 and May 1996, one of Haddon's friends in prison asked him about Michelle. Haddon admitted to killing her, but told James he did not mean to. James said during this conversation, Haddon seemed, quote, deep in thought, almost childlike, very worried, very upset, end quote. Haddon suddenly snapped out of it and said he didn't want to talk about it anymore. A year and a half later, James read an article about Michelle's disappearance and contacted the police with this information. In a 1997 Washington Post interview, Haddon said he killed Laura because he, quote, snapped off and did something stupid because of my problems, end quote. They asked him about killing Michelle, and he wouldn't make eye contact. He said quietly, quote, The MD, I don't talk about that, end quote. Then he explained that the police were just harassing him because they wanted to be able to close the case. He said the police were covering up a lot, and he knew a lot, but he'd have to tell the reporter some other time. On September 23, 1998, a warrant for Haddon was issued, and he was transported from the prison to be questioned. The detective roughly searched Haddon, threw his hat on the ground, hit him in the groin, and told Haddon he would get the same treatment he had received in the November 6, 1992 interview. The detective was even using the same room. Haddon said he did not tell other inmates anything about Michelle. He said he did know Michelle since she played with his niece. He also said he had been at his brother's that day moving out, but didn't talk to anyone while he was there. This conflicted with his first statement about letting someone use the phone and that he was just there to feed the rabbits. Haddon said, quote, I might have seen Michelle while she was alive in the house, end quote. Crime scene investigators sprayed Elizabeth's room down with luminol. Blood was found in 85 separate locations, but it was too old to provide conclusive data. Haddon went to trial for the first-degree murder of Michelle Dorr. The trial began on September 27, 1999. Michelle's body still had not been found. Prosecutors theorized that she had been buried in the family plot in Wellfleet, and after being questioned in October 1992, Haddon had gone to move her body on October 31, 1992. The defense used Carl as her scapegoat based on his uncertainty on the last time he had seen Michelle that day. 
if it had been 1 o'clock, hadn't it clocked out at 2.46. So they questioned how he could have murdered her, cleaned the scene, and ridden his bicycle part of the way to work. On October 8, 1999, Haddon was found guilty of second-degree murder. Two days later, he was sentenced to 30 years to be served consecutively with a sentence for Laura's murder. On January 7, 2000, Haddon cooperated and led police to Michelle's body in a wooded ravine near Route 29 in Silver Spring. When her remains were exhumed, her pink and white polka-dotted swimsuit was found as well. Carl said, quote, It's nice to have the chance to bury Michelle and have a funeral for her which we haven't been able to do for so long. I still miss Michelle to this day, and I will continue to miss her. But at least I'll have somewhere to say goodbye. Haddon is still in prison at the Eastern Correctional Institution East, in Westover, Maryland. Haddon said he had, quote, found religion, end quote, while incarcerated, although Carl Dorr found this hard to accept. Carl said he hoped Haddon had developed a conscience, but it was hard for him to see Haddon singing hymns on televised broadcasts. Finding Michelle's remains afforded the investigators who had worked on finding her for years some peace in this case. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, send us an email at TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched by Haley Gray and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez.